Here we go now with chapter 12 in our series, Impressions of Grace and Grit. This chapter is called In a Different Voice. And we're going to be talking about feminism and spirituality. And in our plot, Treya makes another big shift. She has a big internal shift. Again, there's been quite a few so far in her story. She's overcome a lot. She's been through a lot. And it happens in all sorts of ways for her. She's doing her meditation. She's doing her exercises. She's been doing her diets. She's been learning her psychologies and philosophies. And she's been dealing with, well, these brutal diseases. She's been through chemi- uh, She's been through cancer and chemotherapy. And now she's got diabetes. So what this turns out to be like and how this is for her, we'll see as the plot unfolds. And we're going to talk about a few different psychological things to do with feminism and the woman in spirituality, because that's what she speaks about in this chapter. So, for Treya and Ken, when they find out she has diabetes, it means another radical lifestyle change for both of them, but especially for Treya, because it meant she has to get insulin injections, she needs to be on a painfully strict diet, and they always need to be checking for blood glucose levels. She also carries a little bit of sugar with her, just in case there's an insulin shock. And another big thing is that, well, she's at the doctor's, and she's wondering if she can have her portacath out. And the doctor says no. And that's quite hard for Treya to hear the doctor say, because it, in a sense, implies that he sort of thinks there might be a recurrence in the cancer. So she's sort of feeling pretty good and, oh, I'm on the mend and I think we should be optimistic about my future. So why don't we get this portacath out? So she got that put in for the chemotherapy and the doctors said, we'll leave it in for a little bit longer. And as that she has diabetes, well, this is a struggle because she has to have a blood test every morning to see how much of the oral medication she needs. And she does feel glum, but for the moment she sort of gets to reading the food labels and finding things that are without sugar in them. And there's this sort of funny scene where Ken and Treya are, well, they first go shopping realizing that Treya can't have sugar they're sort of looking around and thinking, oh, this has sugar, oh, and this has sugar, oh, this has sugar, oh, and oh, and this has sugar, everything has sugar. And Ken sort of calls out and says, oh, there's sugar in baby food, did you know? Aisle seven. Oh, some of this, no, can't have that. And then, of course, Ken, 
brilliant as he is, he finds something that doesn't have sugar. And he calls out and he says, Potting soil, aisle four, no sugar. You can eat the potting soil. So that's very funny. And at least they're able to have a light-hearted joke at times about it. And each day she has this food exchange diet, which basically means you can eat certain amount of things and not of others, and you can change certain things in certain amounts depending on how much you eat. And so she's got this table where she can sit and study and say, oh, can I exchange some starch for some more vegetables if I feel like more vegetables? Or if I feel like more fish? Or if I take a cup of cereal, a cup of milk, or something to exchange some raisins and some cottage cheese? She prepares her lunch with a container of free salad foods, seasoned vinegar, peanut butter, banana, sandwich, half a cup of vegetables. And dinner is considered and measured, exactly three oz of fish, three ounce of fish, one cup of whole wheat pasta, half a cup of vegetables, and an evening snack of milk and two crackers. And Ken is cooking all this up in a very creative way. And four times a day, she has to take a urine test for how much sugar there is or how the sugar is affecting her. And she also knows that, well, she's going to need insulin shots. And a friend says to her, well, you're taking this so well. Just as sort of like an offhanded comment. And Treya doesn't really know how to respond to this because she feels like, on the one hand, yes, she is being authentic, but she's being authentically pissed. She is trusting of her anger. It feels like she's being angry in a healthy way or annoyed in a healthy way. And this friend is, well, they're making a comment about what they see, and this reveals something to Treya within herself. And that's all really the psychological analysis that we have to go into at this stage. But there is something quite profound in that, in, well, how much anger is the right amount of anger? And there's an old Aristotle quote, which is, It's one thing for a man to be angry and it's another thing for a man or a woman to be angry for the right reason at the right time for the right amount in the right way. And that's what's going on here with Treya. She's learning how to not suppress her frustration at, oh, she's got another killer disease and yet also not exaggerate it and not let her bring her down. And diabetes, well, it's really unpleasant because since the pancreas is not producing enough insulin, the body can't utilize blood glucose, which means that sugar accumulates in the blood, causing it, essentially, to become thick and honey-like. And some of this sugar spills into the urine, Hence the urine tests. And Ken makes this note, well, the Romans used to test for diabetes by putting their 
their pee-pee next to honeybees who would swarm around the urine if the person was diabetic because the blood had come become so thick with sugar. And this also means that you stay rather thirsty and you drink fluids all the time, so you're urinating frequently because it's not absorbing enough. And the thick areas of the body, served mostly by small capillaries, like the extremities, the kidneys, and the retinas in the eyes, they're slowly damaged because the capillaries can't process the blood. They can't carry the blood. And so for the same reason, well, this is why she's having some blindness. She's having some eyesight trouble and kidney trouble. And the same thing happens with the brain because your brain becomes dehydrated, which results in these huge mood mood swings. You have a lack of concentration. You feel depressed. So along with everything else that Trey has had, the artificial early onset menopause, the after effects of the chemotherapy, and the general difficulties of their relationship that they've been through, this is definitely something that's contributing to Trey's overall sort of struggle And yet she still takes it very well. More so now than she has in the past. And this is something that's just beginning at this stage of the story. And in in another way, it's also continuing. It's very hard at this stage to say, well, where's the beginning? Where's the middle? And where's the end? We don't know how it's going to end. We don't know where she's going to end up in her interior world. And she just seems to become more open, more loving, more forgiving, and more compassionate. And she does think things through because she thinks, well, for example, you say, I have diabetes or I am a diabetic. Now, which one is it? Do you say I have it or I am it? One sounds like a disease that comes from the outside that might be sort of contagious or something. And the other sounds like it's something intrinsic to her character, which is also a negative implication. I guess you could say, I mean, how else could we say it? We could say, diabetes is happening to you. But even that implies too much of an outside coming into you. Or diabetes has occurred to me, within me. See, it's really... It's really difficult. There's no real neutral way of speaking about it. And she keeps working on her things. And she keeps looking at, well, different parts of spirituality. And she comes back to her work and what she wants to do, finding her inner daemon. She's still working with her therapist. She's still giving up her perfectionism. She's still learning to be and not to just mindlessly do. So being and doing is still something she's contending with. And she still wants to do. She still wants to contribute. And that's where the feminism comes in. Because she feels like combining things that she's learnt in her journey into a new spirituality, into a new understanding of feminism. And 
where do we begin with this? I mean, the the first wave of feminism is basically imitating men or proving they can do what men can do, which means they value defining, bringing forth visible results. You can do it, so can I. And there's this fem- this famous feminist called Helen Reddy. And she has this quote, which is, I am woman, I am invincible, I am strong. And that was a very famous quote of the first wave feminists. And it basically sums up the first wave of feminism, which is, oh, let's all become men. Let's all do what men do. And in a very strange sense, the, the feminists, the feminisms of the of the 50s and 60s was very much a, a masculine movement. And Treya felt this as well. Well, she's always been following the values of her father. She said she's always looked up to her father. And it's been her father that she's has been the one that she's tried to emulate. So this whole thing of doing and working and being strong and dominating and pushing yourself out, these are actually masculine values. And the initial push in feminism was to say, oh, we're women and we can do exactly what you can do, so we'll become men. This is very confused. This is a very backwards idea when we look at it in retrospect like this. And then second wave feminism sort of reversed that and said, well, okay, we've realized that we've just been trying to imitate men in order to gain equality. And that hasn't worked because we're not really men. We need to work out our own things. This is what the fem... The, the women or the feminists think, and they say, okay, well, if we're not men, what are we? Okay, so we're women. So let's have a another wave of saying, I am a woman. Let's do all the things that women do. I'll be, I'll be really elegant. I'll be really sexy. I'll be into fashion. I'll have my sexuality out on the front. I'll have all my softness, I'll be really emotional, I'll be able to express my emotions, I'll be really airy, I'll be able to dance, I'll be really fluffy, these sorts of values. And then also to insist on, well, celebrating these things, understanding the power of these qualities, fighting for the ability to have these qualities and these values flourish and also utilizing them. There is a very, it's a more complex way of regaining the power that women have done in the second wave because they've then harnessed the values that are intrinsic to them and used them in the world of men. Now, when it comes to equality, well, we're very much in a masculine, saturated culture worldwide for centuries. So this second wave of feminism was very important. It was a very big breakthrough 
Because all these qualities of, well, the feminine essence haven't had their chance to flower and flourish and be expressed and be seen as equal next to the values of the man. Now, third wave feminism, well, that's when it gets a bit more intricate, nuanced and tricky because now you're integrating these two things. And this is where Treya Treya is at. Treya is a very high-level, highly intelligent feminist who's aware of many dynamics and integrates multiple forms of it through psychology, spirituality, and culture. And one of the things she says is, well, what about amorphous work? So this is the kind of work that isn't fully visible. And this is important for feminism. This is where we start to celebrate the values of the woman in a very healthy way. Because put it, put, let's look at it this way. Say you have a company or a business or a project, or an organization, or anything. And let's say there's the masculine way to run it, and the feminist way to run it. And the masculine way is to sort of come in and say, okay, we need results. Okay, let's put a number on things. Let's report what's changed. Let's change some things. Let's build some things. Let's implement some things. And it's really gross, it's really obvious, it's all about tracking, it's all about visible results and these sorts of things. It's a very sort of, it's in a way an aggressive way to run a business or an organization. Now the other way, the feminist way, is to come in and to, like Treya does with her gardening, to allow things to flower to create a garden bed which is full of nutrients so that things can grow. And that might mean, well, you go into the organization and you're not really telling people what to do and you're not really trying to get a result and you're not really trying to change anything and yet somehow your presence is changing the atmosphere into something very positive. Your presence, simply by being around and being very much a subtle influence on the atmosphere, is something that's helping. And yet it's not tangible. This is why the women are suppressed in the workforce. This is why feminism is so important, subtle feminism. Because the boss can say, well, okay, so I've got this masculine worker here and this feminine worker here. And first of all, the boss is a man, so that's number one inequality there. And he's looking at the man and he's saying, okay, show me what you've done. And the man's saying, well, I've got this result, these changes, this implementation, these numbers, these graphs, and this is what I've done. And then the woman, on the other hand, the feminist, on the other hand, they say, well, show me what you've done. They say, okay, well, I've been allowing people to flourish. I've been able to create a atmosphere. Now, it's just not going to fly. It's a very tough, that's an uphill battle for the, for the feminist 
to explain that to the mas- masculine boss, like the company boss or the organization boss, that's just, it's, it's not a repression. Now, don't, don't get the idea that in this picture of the organiza- organization with the masculine worker and the feminist worker, it's not that the men are sort of scheming like, oh, how can we, yeah, how can we dominate these women? How can we use these women or how can we scheme against these women? It's not like that at all. It's simply a matter of unconsciousness. It's simply a matter of unawareness. It's a matter of values which have not yet come forward into an understanding. And this is what a real, authentic, nuanced feminism is about. It's not about saying, hey, you pig-headed man, you've been repressing me. No, it's about how do we understand the value structures between us, know their limits, and allow them to flourish and open. So that's a little bit about feminism. And Treya has a big conversation with her friends, and she writes down some notes. So let's go through some of those notes. This is to do with Feminism, more towards the spirituality side. We've talked about sort of a, I guess, what do we say, like, we've done a little bit of a quick history on ABC feminism. And now we get into some stuff that's more on the side of what Trey is thinking about. So point number one, the whole area of women's spirituality is blank. So most of the writing that nuns have done is lost. Women don't write much in the way of the spiritual search. Spiritual search. And women, well, they're kept out of important positions in most established religions. Now remember... When we're talking about organized religion, you have both the exoteric and the esoteric religion. So the traditional fundamentalism, non-metaphorical, believe it as it says, religion is the exoteric religion. But then there's also the esoteric, which is the transcendental, the higher stages, the enlightenment, the perennial philosophy. And this occurs, well, in the nuns as well. And yet so much has not been said. Basically, nothing has been said. Point two, women's spirituality looks different from men's. It's less goal-orientated. And this could change notions about, well, what enlightenment is. It's more about encompassing, embracing, more anamorphous, to use that word again. And we'll come back and expand on that point some more. Women's spirituality, point point three, women's spirituality is hard to see, hard to define. What are the stages, the steps? What are the training? And the example she uses is, Crochet or knitting 
as good as meditating to train attention and quiet the mind. And that's a perfect example. So say you've got say you've got a woman who's been sitting there in silence knitting for 3 hours and then you've got a man who's been sitting on his cushion meditating. Well, how is each one related to an opening to God? And I can see in that image it's very much a matter of just expression and aggressive expression. Because you could say to that man, well, why are you sitting there doing nothing, meditating for three hours? And he could say, well, I'm searching for God and this is what I've found. You say, well, do you have a quiet mind? You say, no, I'm, I'm trying to attain a quiet mind. I will attain a quiet mind when, when, I've, when I've done more hours. And then you go to the woman and you say, well, why, why are you sitting there just knitting? And she says, oh, no reason. I just like it. And you say, well, do you have a quiet mind? I say, yes, I have a quiet mind. I feel very peaceful. So in that sense, by that comparison, the woman is actually enlightened. The woman has actually attained what the man is trying to do by sitting on his meditation cushion. And yet the whole literature is going to open up around the man, not the woman. Because the man's then going to go and write a book about his struggle to find enlightenment. Point number three, or we'll skip over point number three. Point number four, there's a long discussion on Gilligan, Carol Gilligan, who's written this book in a different voice. So she was a student of Lawrence Kohlberg, who's a moral theorist, who first codified three broad stages of moral development. And that is, well, you've got pre-conventional, where the person thinks that what is right is whatever they want. So what is, what is right is my opinion. So my opinion is right, and that's our morality. And then you've got the conventional stage where people base their decisions on what society wants. So that's the sociocentric vision of morality, which is what's right is what we all agree on. It's what society collectively votes on and decides is right together. And then you've got the post-conventional stage where decisions of morality are based on universal principles and reasoning. And these tests that Kohlberg and Gilligan have, well, these, these structures that Kohlberg and Gilligan have identified have been tested across multiple cultures, across multiple times. So it's a, it's a deep structure. They're talking about deep structures. And one of the examples they use is, well, and when, this is when you apply this to feminism and value spheres, you say, okay, so there's a boy playing baseball and he strikes out and he starts crying because he feels bad that he strikes out. And now the girl will say, give him another chance. 
And the boy will say, no, rules are rules. He's out. So boys override the feelings to save the rules, where girls override the rules to save the feelings. And both are important in the real world. Both are very different. Both are, well, they're value structures. And yet, a real post-conventional morality would be looking at integrating both of these things. Honouring their differences and learning from them. Point number six. I forget what point we're up to. might be five or six. But Ken actually uses Kohlberg and Gilligan in his model. But he says that he has very little understanding of women's spirituality. Like the whole field is blank. And there needs to be a lot more. And the next point is, well, women who have gained enlightenment... How did they do it? Did they follow traditional male paths? Did they get through it following their own way? How did they find their own way? What sort of conflicts or self-doubt did they go through? That's something that's so much misunderstood, or not misunderstood, but just unknown, because there's no documentation on it. And then Treya also mentions mentions Findhorn, which is the which is a feminine organization, as she puts it, because she's in a place where, and this is the institution she's been going to, on and off for quite some time now for her sort of recharges, spiritual recharge, and it's got feminist ideals because there's no adherence to a strict, already defined way. It's a supportive community in a family kind of way. And it's slower, it's more organic, it's easily sidetracked, and there's a less visible sense of movement, less visible sense of accomplishment. So there's no outside awards or degrees or definite stages to mark as progress. And then another point is, well, the feminist way is more of a descent. So the goddess is a descending and the god is the arising. So both are necessary and important, but very much little work has been done on the goddess. When you see depictions of Mary in the stained glass windows, she's looking down. She's looking over the baby Jesus or the humanity she's taking care of from above coming down. And there's something in Jesus in that too as well. This is why Jesus is, well, coming. That's why they say Jesus came down from the heavens to earth. So he was first died and then raised again, the ascension, But that's only half of it. The other side of it is, well, he came down from the heavens. And that's this goddess and god descent and ascent dynamic. And then there's also the sphere of identifying with the father and then moving towards the power of the mother. And this for Treya is an ability she wants to develop without leaving behind her ability to identify with 
the male values. So it's like adding something. So it's both, it, it's either or, it's both and, not either or. So she's not neglecting her feminist views. Sorry, she's not neglecting her masculine values. It's not a, it's not a conflicted ve- feminist views. It's not like there are all these components within her that are sort of back and forth and fighting. Oh, should I, shouldn't I, or this doesn't work with this. No, it's moving towards an embracing of all the different components. And you can sort of see, like, these are some more of my own ideas, which is, say you take a man and you you give him a whole bunch of spiritual practice, then, or, or he becomes enlightened or he makes progress or whatever. You can sort of see a before and after. Because it's like, okay, well, he used to have these emotional problems. He used to have a creaky neck. He used to not talk quite so politely or he used to have these psychological shadows which would come up and he'd have bad posture and then you say okay well let's put him through a whole bunch of transformative practice and we'll fix him up okay so he's worked out his daddy issues he's a lot more confident he speaks more clearly he speaks from his feelings he's fixed up his posture his face has opened up his expressions are more alive his eyes have relaxed his body has relaxed. His energies are flowing. It's like, wow, wow, you've done a whole lot of work. Wow, this is amazing. What have you done? And you say, oh, I've done all this transformative practice. Now, in some cases, you do that with the woman. And the before and after is not as dramatic. Because you could take a woman and then put her through all the same stuff as the man And you can say, well, hang on, she still looks beautiful. She still has good posture. She still knows how to talk from her feelings. She still has very open eyes. She still has this glow about her. She still has a radiance. Yeah, you've always always had radiance. You're a woman. It's easy for you. (laughs) This kind of thing. But this goes to show that there's a subtle difference that just cannot be seen. And this is one of the points, which is that progress is not so much obvious for women. And I'd like to suggest that it's because they're more advanced. They are more, it's easier for them to, well, I've heard this elsewhere as well. It's it's easier for women to become enlightened than it is for men. And in a sense, women are already enlightened. They're already advanced. They're already gods. And there's a lot that I can think of that can support this hypothesis. So let me spit out some ideas. This isn't necessarily in the story that we're talking about now, but this is just some things that I've been thinking about and I've picked up elsewhere. So... Consider this, a woman, well, one of the things that defines a woman so much is that she gives birth. So she gives birth to a child. And that process is evolutionary ingrained into her being, whether she's had a child or not. And that experience is, well, what's the experience of birth? You 
you have some conception. So something begins. A seed is sown. And then that seed slowly starts to grow more and more and more. And then you realize something is coming. You realize something's going to happen, something big. You realize you're pregnant. And then, well, then you give birth. And what is giving birth? It's this huge event. It's this huge separating out of yourself to create this whole new being. And then your whole life changes because you have a child. And that is, well, an exact metaphor or an exact correlation of enlightenment. And for the man, well, what is the seed? It's just the idea. He just has to get the idea of enlightenment. It's all in his mind. And then if that idea grows, well, it might not grow. But if it grows, then he can become pregnant with enlightenment. And then he has to work and work and work and come to this point where it's this huge thing and there's this big shift. But it's much more natural for women to do that because they have been giving birth since the dawn of time. And another point, which is that women are receptive. And men are, well, they're staunch. So the hurdles towards attainment or transcendence are different for men and women. For the man, he's full of himself. He's got his aggression. He's got his desires. He's got his testosterone. He's got his ego. And it's not to say that women don't have egos, but it's just for the man, an outward, a, like a, it's, it's, it's outward focused. You're settled on the, the external world for self-gratification. And it's a very hard sort of, it's will. That's what it comes down to. It's pushing really hard. But for the woman, it's completely the opposite. She's receptive. Her natural essence is to be receiving, receiving and perceiving, allowing things to come in, listening to people talk. Even in, even in sexuality, the woman's sexuality is about receiving. She receives the seed of the man. And it's very hard for men to reverse that will in them and to gain the receptivity of feminine essence. It's much more natural for women. And that's what enlightenment is. It's, it's, a, it's a receiving of reality. When you become enlightened, you receive all of reality. You surrender to it. And there is so much about, well, why don't we have female gurus? Why is it always a man that's talking? And the simple thing, the simple answer to that is, well, women just don't talk when they become enlightened. And there are a number of reactions to enlightenment, and not talking is one of them. So when... There's basically three or four things that can happen when you, once you become enlightened. 
One, you don't say anything. Two, you say a lot. So Osho spoke a lot. There was a point where he was talking twice a day. And some of those lectures were four hours. And he was doing that for decades. He was talking nonstop except for his three-year break in the middle. He's got thousands of lectures, thousands of discourses. He did not stop talking. Or you dance. So you either have silence, talking, or dancing. And dance is, well, that's the mirror figure in Hindu mythology. That's the woman who became enlightened and then started dancing nonstop. So, for someone to become enlightened and then to talk, they still have to have that sort of masculine, aggressive nature to them. And I think it would be safe to assume that actually there's more enlightened women than there are men. It's just that you would never know because they would never say You've got to understand this, that the, the whole thing of language and communicating and talking, and even more generally, like writing books, discussing ideas, teaching, this, this whole thing, all of it, words, 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 blah, 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 blah. It's really a very, it's a very narrow, tiny, slithering part of what the whole existence has to offer and it's a very it's it's a very particular type of person with a particular type of circumstances and a very particular kind of unfolding that would lead them to actually wanting to talk and in many ways talking is well it's very unsexy it's very not feminine When you're talking, you're really, you're really being a man. It's just like, would you stop being a man? Would you stop talking? <laughs> so that's some other ideas about, well, why we don't have more women being more prominent in the spiritual circles and the transcendental psychology circles. So essentially, women are more spiritual than men. And yet it's just the way that communication works that we end up with more information about men than women. And I will also add, before we move on to our next point, that here we're using the feminine and the masculine as the same as man and woman. So we're not differentiating the difference between man and woman and feminine and masculine here. So you can be a, a man but a feminine essence. You can, be a, you can, in a sense, be a woman in a man's body, but I don't think we need to delve into that. I mean, we're already so far off on deep nuances that I assume you can understand that. So let's move on in our plot. So Trey is having some breakthroughs and she says, just living is okay. Just being is okay. Doing isn't necessarily necessary. 
It's a kind of allowing. And she gets to actually starting her own organization, which is called the Cancer Support Community. And it's in its early days, but this community, this organization, would actually go on to serve hundreds of cancer patients and their helpers and their families free of charge each week. And there's another funny bit of trivia, which is that she makes friends with this woman who was friends with Anna Karina, who was the wife of the French film director Jean-Luc Godard. So (laughs) I don't know if you're a fan of the Godard films, but I am. I found that very much funny that, you know, oh, well, that's just two people removed from Godard. Makes me wonder, who, who do these people hang out with? Why are these such high-class people always working in their circles? How do I get there? I want to meet Anna Karina. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think Anna Karina is still alive, but it just goes to show how funny circles are, social circles. So she's got a whole bunch of people to work with on starting a community. And she's at first looking at, well, we could do it as a branch of another community, which is the wellness community in San Francisco, or they could start up a completely separate center. And they found that, well, they're going to start their own because they want to be more feminine. They want to have less of an emphasis on fighting cancer or on recovering from cancer, and more of an emphasis on the overall quality of life during the process. So she says she didn't want to set it up so that people felt like they had failed or lost somehow if the cancer remained. So this is a feminist organization or or an organization based on the feminist values. And it's radical. It's different. It's powerful. This is heavy stuff. And it means that she wants to work with people who are moving towards life, even in the midst of cancer. And this is a subtle nuance that she's learnt about through her own struggles. How do you make peace with something within you and yet still feel the urge to improve and transcend? And she goes into some contemplation when she's thinking all this through and she's having some ideas. And one night, according to Trey, well, she finds her long-sought daemon. And it's not the fully-fledged version, but it's announcing its presence. And it happens in a different voice, a voice she had too long suppressed. So how you talk is an indication of where you're at with your understanding, with how you feel about yourself. And she can see that the reason the paved road wasn't right for her is that she is more of a maker than a knower or a doer. So, so far we've been dividing things into doing and being And now she comes across the realization 
that she is a maker, not a doer. And that means the more creative things, things like potting, things like art, things like gardening. And that's very different to being or knowing or doing. So she's found a new nuance there. She says it feels like coming home. It feels quieter in her mind. More of the earth. More feminine. More amorphous. And Treya, well, she actually would become a bit of a spokesperson for a more compassionate view or a more feminist view on illness. And she even gets a call to be on the Oprah Winfrey show. So that goes to show that she's not just some person off in her own world. She's actually doing things. And it's so funny that I say doing things. It's it's so hard to say. Like It, it just even shows that ma- the masculine thing is even in language. Like, I want to say she's doing things in the world, but she's really allowing things in the world. She's making things in the world. <laughs> Maybe we should say. But also, her contemplation continues into herself. Because all these realizations and these understandings, they're not devoid from her being. They're not just philosophies. They're not just ideas. It's just not feminism theory. But it's actually within her. It's actually within how she sees herself. And her situation. And one of the points that she's coming to terms with is the question of guilt. If someone develops cancer, then they theorize that they bring it on themselves. And that in turn makes them feel guilty or wrong or bad. But this can lead to the guilt itself becoming a problem that might actually even interfere with how they cope with the disease and move forward towards health and a better quality of life. And this is why it's such a sensitive issue. This is what she's saying. That's why the whole issue of responsibility needs to be dealt with sensitively. That's why it's important to make careful distinctions about causation and not impute unconscious motives to others. So it's difficult to deny unconscious or subconscious motives. And she says that for for her, having people theorize about her on that level is what makes her feel violated and sometimes quite helpless. And we all know how frustrating it can be to feel unjustly accused by another of acting on some unconscious motive and then have them interpret all our protestations and our rebuttals as simple denial and then further proof that they were right in the first place all along. So this is, this is psychology at its cruelest. This is psychology being used in a pathological way in the interpersonal 
sphere, which is someone saying, well, okay, so, so Treya has cancer. So we can sit around and we can talk like, well, why did she get cancer? What happened? What was the cause of it? We can theorize certain things. And if you're in the new age, you might say, well, hang on. Is it something in your personality? Do you have a death wish? And then Treya, well, she can have her defense and she can get triggered and she could say, no, that's not the right way to think about it. That's wrong. But then you can have the other side of it, which is, oh, why are you getting defensive then? That just proves it. Why are you being so defensive? And that is a tricky one. That's, that's a tricky one even more broadly. Which is, I can say something, and then I can watch your response to it, and then I can use your response to further just drill in what I've said, or to strengthen what I've said, and also to put it even closer to you, to make you squirm. Now, I would do that if I'm doing it in a pathological way for reasons that are entwined in my being and my problems, but I can't see that. And this is a, well, it's a conflicting psychology. It's not a flowing psychology. Now, on the other hand, it is possible to talk to someone and to see that they've been triggered. And to say, well, why are you being so defensive when I talk about this? And the difference is compassion. The difference is, are you coming at it from a place of understanding? The difference is, are you truly trying to work towards a common ground between the person that you're talking to and the person you're listening to? And Treya continues to contemplate these things. And she continues to write in her diary, her journal. And these sorts of nuances have been hard won from her own experience. But they're now deeply seated in her being. And something then starts to occur a really big shift starts to occur. And this is when she comes across the word meaning. And it doesn't seem to have quite the same bite for her as it once did. It doesn't quite seem to have the ability to make her feel unhappy, dissatisfied and restless. Before she has felt very much like, oh, how do I find meaning? What is my meaning? But now things are shifting. And part of her move towards this wisdom, she talks to Ken about, and sometimes when she talks to others about her changes and what's happening within her, she doesn't feel that it's quite certain if it's true. And she wonders, is she, is she just bragging Is she saying something just hoping that it's true? Is she just affirming something? 
in the want for it to be true, but yet it might not be true. And she's aware of this and she thinks it through. She contemplates and she feels actually she's not pretending. When she starts to write and talk about things that used to bother her, as if they do, well then that's when she's pretending. That's when it doesn't quite have the weight to it. So her sense of complaining or her bitterness, her sort of feeling bad about the whole situation, she's realizing that those words and those things that she's saying, well, they feel different. They feel fake. And that's the breakthrough is that her old self now feels fake. So this self-pitying is just sort of this old territory which is out of date. There's no heart in them. She's bored with what she's saying. And when she realizes this, she feels confident confident that actually she is moving forward. She's leaving those old parts behind her. And she realizes that actually she has got a very deep sense of allowing within her. And this is integrated with her daemon, her sense of making, her sense of knowing, her sense of creating an organization that can do some good in the world. And this is a very big shift for Treya. And at this time, the doctors decide that Treya can have her portacath removed. Hallelujah. (laughs) So this means they think that her chances of a recurrence are slim. Slim enough that she doesn't need to have it in. And they're very happy. Treya is glowing. And they go out on the town and they say, to hell with the diet for one night. And they have so much fun and they celebrate. And it would seem like, well, Treya has made a very big shift to come home. And that is almost all of this chapter. That is almost where the chapter ends. Right up until the last two sentences the last two or three lines of what's written in this chapter. It would seem like a very positive place to end this chapter, but I feel I will just read the last two lines of this chapter so that you know what happens next in the plot. Exactly two weeks later, to the day, Treya discovered a lump on her chest. The lump was removed. The lump was cancer. And that's all we'll say for this chapter. 
We'll be back very soon with the next chapter. And that's all I have to say for now.